you know, people who were formerly kind of afraid of wine, afraid of making a wine mistake. You know, I hear this a lot from consumers. Oh, I'm, I, I'm afraid of ordering wine. I'm afraid I'll do something wrong. It's like, no, just, just have fun with it. And I love the way Rosé has sort of invited those people into the fold. Open up the champagne. Pop. It's my house. Come on, turn it up. Uh. Hear a knock on the door and the night begins. Cause we've done this before, so you come on in. Make yourself at my home. Tell me where you been. Pour yourself something cold. Hello, and welcome to Disgorged, a fun and spirited look at the world of wine and drinking. I'm your host, Zach Jabal. And joining me on the show today is Catherine Cole. She's the author of the recent book, Rosé All Day, and the host of NPR's food and beverage podcast, The Four Top. We'll talk about wine writing, the rise of rosé, and how you talk about food and wine with a national audience. But first, a thought. I've come to loathe the entire concept of wine by the glass. While it undoubtedly provides a valuable service for some guests, I also find it antithetical to much of what makes wine wonderful. Much of the joy in wine is in sharing it with others, to delight in it together, and maybe even spend a few minutes discussing it. Yet, we live in a world where our own personal desires are endlessly catered to, and the glass pour is just another example. Strangely, even as Americans have largely embraced the world of family-style dining, tapas, and every other term you can think of for sharing food, sharing a bottle of wine seems out of bounds for many diners. Sure, it requires a bit of compromise, and even a discussion of personal preferences, but the whole point of eating with other people is to share in the experience. Sometimes I have nightmares of a dystopian restaurant future, where a robot serves everyone an individually wrapped meal, which the diners then proceed to eat in utter silence, their eyes glued to their phones. Sharing a bottle of wine at dinner might not cure all the ills of the modern world, but it would at least encourage us to talk to one another. That's a start. Joining me today on Disgorged is Catherine Cole. She's an accomplished wine writer and the executive producer and host of The Four Top, an excellent podcast on NPR all about food and drink. Catherine, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Zachary. Uh, so let's start with a, maybe a simple question, which is, uh, you know, you were the, the wine writer for the Oregonian for a, a, a long time. How did you get started writing about wine? Um, let me think about that. Uh, well, I, you know, I grew up in Seattle, where I believe you're based. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, the Washington wine industry was just starting to pick up. And so my parents had friends who owned wine shops and who were starting to plant vineyards. And it was kind of this exciting time. And so I grew up tasting a lot of wine and thinking a lot about sort of the possibilities for wine. Um, And then I became a journalist later in life, uh, and I became a magazine editor. And when I moved to Portland to freelance, I looked around and realized that I was surrounded by a really exciting wine country, um, similar to Washington, and that there was just so much possibility and so much going on. And so I thought, well, why not specialize um, rather than freelance about everything? Why not just specialize and, and freelance just about wine? So I did that. I actually started writing about beverages in general for a couple of magazines. I was writing about cocktails and spirits and beer, but quickly realized that wine was really where my interest lay. And so I did the first two levels of the International Sommelier Guild and somehow managed to talk the Oregonian into giving me a a gig. (laughs) I'm still not sure how I did that, but (laughs) somehow it worked. 
Excellent. And when you got started kind of writing about wine in, especially in a place like Oregon, as you mentioned, uh, similar to, to Washington, where uh, everything is still fairly new, obviously, you know, we're getting to the point now where, where some, uh, the, you know, the early days of those wine industries maybe stretch back 50 or so years. And, and the sort of modern, more modern expression is, you know, 20 or 30 years old. Were you feeling like you were kind of exposing your readers to things that they had never heard about before or because it seems like you know the even in a place like portland or a place like seattle where obviously the the wine industry uh is nearby uh, you know most people especially at that time were probably not super familiar with really anything that you were writing about yeah i when you know the industry was so different when i started uh writing for the oregonian in 2002 it was really still in its infancy even though it had been around for quite some time um, I feel like for the first, what would that have been, um, 30 years or so, the industry was really kind of just staying, af- I don't want to say just staying afloat, but, you know, they were just trying to figure things out, like what to plant where, which clones to plant, uh, oh, shoot, we do have phylloxera here, just trying to, like, figure out the basics and the infrastructure. And so by the time I started covering Oregon Wine in 2002, um, there was a lot more of a sense of inquiry and discovery that was kind of, you know, winemakers were saying, okay, I, I know I can grow grapes and they won't, you know, die. <laughs> so now where can I go from here? And so winemakers were starting to say, oh, well, let's, let's try to just only do spontaneous fermentations. Let's try to make Pinot without finding and filtering it. You know, we can take we can take off the life vest and try to just you know swim around and, and see what we can do on our own, and not worry that we're going to lose an entire crop anymore because we have enough knowledge now that that we're past that stage. So it was a super exciting time to start covering Oregon wine. Mm-hmm. And were you at that point more relaying kind of the personalities and the people behind the wines, or was it more talking about you know this is what the you know these are the six best Pinot Noirs from the Dundee Hills? Like, the, how did you kind of approach what I think is one of the challenges for writing about wine, and and I think more broadly maybe writing about food and beverage in general, which is sort of do you is it more review consumer oriented or is it more sort of storytelling? Oh. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I tried to do both. Uh, you have a limited amount of space, and the consumers always do want, you know, just give me a list of six wines so I can rip it out, take it to the store, and ask the, you know, wine merchant if, if she or he has it. So, you know, you have to finish a column with something like that. But, I, you know, I did always include the personalities because particularly in Oregon, there was it was very much this sort of irreverent hippie culture around wine. Um, the Oregon winemakers all made it very clear that they had made a conscious decision not to make wine in California. So it, it really was impossible to untangle the personality from the wine. Um, you know, my first article about biodynamic wine, it was all about Jimmy Brooks, who was, a, you know, a really well-known biodynamic winemaker. Um, I'm thinking about my article about unfined and unfiltered wines, and I remember focusing on Westry, um, and the husband and wife owners of Westry were, I think, philosophy majors at Reed College, and, you know, it kind of, their personalities matched with what they were doing, for sure. So you, you always had to sprinkle in a little bit of that. <laughs> Definitely. Um, when you got started writing about wine, as you said, in 2002, and in that sort of earlier period, like I feel like now when when I tell people you know 
writing or talking about wine or working as a sommelier, there's there's such this cultural, um, I guess, appreciation for and interest in wine that I feel like is a, a little bit of a newer thing. Um, I don't know. Did you did, were people incredulous that that was what you covered, or were they excited, or did, did they just want you to again tell them what to buy? Um, I, they weren't. I mean, it, it wasn't like the Stone Age. I mean, you know. People were interested in wine, um, but I think they weren't as sophisticated as they are now. I think more people now are more interested in natural wines, which wasn't even a term at the time. Um, you know, people, I think, in '02 were much more um, hesitant to try a wine like Riesling, whereas now there's kind of a younger generation of drinkers who are much more open-minded and experimental. I think there was a, a lot more year back then about trying anything that wasn't Pinot Noir, basically, or Pinot Gris. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just those two. Um, so yeah, it's been nice to see the evolution of of the uh, the wine appreciating public. So would you say that, that the biggest part of that evolution has just been openness to new things, whether it's varietal or stylistic, uh, you know, styles of making wine or even uh, places of origin for wines? Or like what, what has changed in the 15 or so years that you've been doing this? Uh, definitely that openness. Um, also, I really, I, th- I think we've, those of us who are in the industry feel like we've been beaten over the head by this point, but it really is true that there was this sort of Parker mindset um, in the 90s through the early 2000s, and whether or not the general public knew where it was coming from, they had that mindset. Oh, if it's big and it's red, it must be good. If it's expensive, big and red, it must be really good. <laughs> if it's in a big, heavy bottle and there's a lot of new oak on it and it says reserve, it must be really, really good. And it says you know? 97 points, then I'm going to you know, really, really, really go for it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was my next point. So, um, and yeah, I, I, I really, you know, people like Eric Asimov with the New York Times were kind of have been beating this drum forever and I tried to quietly beat my own little drum at the Oregonian um, and finally I think that the message has gotten through and you know even the the big publications that used to give a hundred points to you know a wine that I would have considered undrinkable are now the way they assess wines is a little different and they are sort of you know celebrating wines that are tend to be a little more balanced higher in acidity that kind of thing so um, yeah it, it's it's obvious to me that the public's tastes have changed for sure because um, I often will talk to consumer you know you you probably have these conversations too where consumers come up to you and they say oh I don't know anything about wine and you're like you don't need to it's not a requirement <laughs> you're just supposed to enjoy it and have fun with it and it's not a test but then I start talking to them, and it turns out they have a pretty sophisticated palate, and I, I love that because, you know, 17 years ago, I I would have said, "Ooh, okay, that's I'm really glad you like big California cabs. Enjoy that," you know. And now I start talking to folks, and they're like, "Oh, you know, what I really like is a really crisp, dry, light white wine," and they'll say something like, "Like Sancerre? What is Sancerre? I don't know what it is, but I really like it." And I'm like, "Oh, that's so good to hear." <laughs> Yeah, it is we definitely can work with true. This. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot more. Uh, people are are a little bit less inclined to just sort of uh, default to the the three varietals and the four places that they've heard of. Um, yeah. Although there's although of course there's there's still plenty of that and there's still plenty of um, you know sort of unfortunately I think here in the states a, a an over reliance on on ordering wine by varietal 
uh, kind of without understanding, you know, necessarily what that might mean. And that, you know, not every, especially with certain varietals that can be quite different, but depending on who makes them and where and how, uh, you know, there's a little bit of that sort of over-reliance on, oh, I like Pinot Noir, so I'm going to assume that every Pinot Noir everywhere is the same, which is, um, you know, right. silly. Well, yeah, but you know what? I'm not, I'm never going to question a consumer for not having the time to study wine books, you know? Sure, that's our job. Yeah, Yeah, that's our job to help them out. So so speaking of wine books, you you released a wine book this year, uh, Rosé All Day. Uh, Talk a little bit about that, because, you know, I think uh, Rosé is one of those, I think it's like one of these things where um, the cultural conversation around Rosé is really interesting and also kind of strange to me like you know rosé had its period uh it still obviously is a, is tremendously popular and grows in popularity every year uh broadly and i think it was it's sort of one of these things where i think there's a certain part of the let's say sommelier wine writer wine whatever community that's like has a little bit of a dr frankenstein sense of like oh no what have we done uh with <laughs> rosé but but like to yeah. me I, I don't know like i i guess i, I feel like there's there's obviously some terrible rosé out there as there is for every kind of wine on the planet um but i I feel like there's sort of been this backlash against it which maybe is interesting because you know the book came out this year so so did you face some of that and and what was the process of writing that book like um you know it's interesting because when i started the book it took me you know a couple years between the time when i wrote the proposal and started doing research and then it was finally done um so um, when I started the book, there were no books on rosé, and it really was just starting to pick up. Um, I think 2015 was the year when the, the sales numbers started to just go a little crazy. Um, so that was kind of when I started it. And then by the, I feel like by the time the book actually came out, everyone was like, oh, rosé, <laughs> so over. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> um, it's kind of, yeah, I mean, we've definitely probably reached peak rosé at this point. And there are, unfortunately, a lot of winemakers phoning it in because they're like, oh, wow, this is really popular and I can just turn it out really quickly and get the inventory out of my cellar. So, you know, I'll just shove it in some stainless steel and not really think about it, Um, you know, and shoot a bunch of sulfur into it. And, you know, here we go. And that doesn't do rosé any favors. And then people buy it and they assume that rosé can should only cost $12 and then it's kind of shitty especially if it they don't drink it right away. I mean, those types of rosés you really have to drink within the first few months after release. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, cuz I had to write the book over the winter because just of the timing of when I got my final offer letter and when they wanted the the manuscript in. So, yeah. <laughs> it was really interesting to taste, you know, those cheap rosés by December or January or February. They're not good anymore. It's like you really do have to drink them by, like, September. Um, But, you know, the area I really, really enjoyed exploring and the area that I get excited about, you know, when I'm talking to consumers and other wine folks is um, the exploration of quality winemaking in rosé, a more oxidative winemaking style, um, the use of barrels, whether they're neutral or um, even, you know, new oak depending on how you use it. Um, there, there's a lot There's a lot of movement in sort of higher-end, ageability-type um, rosés, and there, there's a, a, a lot of exploration that can be done. Um, you, there are rosés that taste like 
fantastic white wines that you would want to put in your cellar. And people don't realize that. And I almost think that there's it can be more exciting than white wine in a way because there's that bit of skin contact, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, for me, a Pinot Gris that's pink is more interesting than a Pinot Gris that's white because I think it's a more true expression of the grape to have that bit of skin contact. And, and it, it just says a little bit more about the grape itself. So I think that rosé could, you know, someday be better, not, I don't want to say better than white, but as good as white. Mm-hmm. And I think right now people think of it as just this picnic wine. And yeah. I mean, I could talk your ear off about how rosé used to be the only good wine, you know, centuries ago. There really wasn't white wine the way we think of it today, and there wasn't red wine the way we think of it today. Pretty much everything was rosé. Yeah. Well, um, and it's it's certainly true that, that you know, the that added bit of skin contact, that extra bit of tannin, uh, not only makes it well, I would say it makes it more possible to, to age rosé than many white wines. But also, yeah, I mean, it just from a uh, tasting standpoint, you know, if, you're, if your goal for rosé is to sit on a patio at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a sunny summer afternoon, then you probably want the $12 bottle of rosé because, you know, you're drinking it ice cold and who really cares? Like that's – and that's right. – you know, that's a fine thing. That is, I think, a, a, that's weirdly like a thing that's that was – that was what popularized rosé and has become mm-hmm. in some quarters the like the a thing that's demonized about rosé and like I don't think there's anything wrong with wine that is eminently drinkable but there is another part I mean there's another world to rosé which is like it can be as you said this incredibly complex ageable interesting nuanced wine and if you just yeah. sort of if you sort of say well it can only ever be the you know, the porch pounder, then yeah, you're kind of, you're unfortunately closing yourself off to a lot of really cool wines. You are, but also I really encourage people to just throw an ice cube in a glass of that $12 rosé and just have fun with it. Because I, I also, I, I also encourage that end of it because there's a certain openness, um, that, you know, people who were, formerly kind of afraid of wine, afraid of making a wine mistake. You know, I hear this a lot from consumers. Oh, I'm, I, I'm afraid of ordering wine. I'm afraid I'll do something wrong. It's like, no, just just have fun with it. And I love the way Rosé has sort of invited those people into the fold, um, especially women. And I love that. I, you know, women tend to question their own knowledge and their own ability to make decisions for a number of cultural reasons that I don't need to get into now, but I love that um, Rosé has been this sort of welcoming product for them where they can just order it and feel good about themselves, and yeah, so for them, you know, they, they I talked to a lot of women consumers who say, oh, I, is it okay for me to put ice cubes in my Rosé? I'm like, hell yeah, have, you know, just have fun with it, enjoy it, and learn to, you know, this, this is teaching you to just love wine, and so that's great. Yeah. Do you, it's my sense, and I think this has probably been written about and talked about before, but it is my sense that unfortunately some part of the backlash against Rosé is definitely gendered um, and that it's become, I guess, more associated, maybe, you know, simply because of color, also probably yeah. just sort of the, some of that sort of uh, breezy style has been yeah. sort of identified as with women. And I mean, I don't, I don't even, I don't know that I have a, a, a specific question other than to say sort of like WTF. Well, you know about brose, though. Ugh. There's kind of this metrosexual thing, too, where the, the guys are, are 
apparently guys account for 45% of all rosé consumers. So I think they're secretly drinking rosé. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there is the movement in the high end where, um, you know, um, Chateau de Clan, which, which makes Whispering Angel, also makes some really expensive high end still rosés. And they, you know, those um, higher end Provençal producers, they're starting to put their rosés in bottles that look like champagne bottles and are as heavy as champagne bottles. So there, I think there is movement among um, the people who want to be seen as high-end luxury drinkers, and a lot of those those consumers are guys. This, and in fact, I think it's a lot of the times it's the same guys who would have ordered a 99-point Parker wine, you know, 15 years ago, are ordering a, a magnum of a really expensive Provencal Rosé, and that's that's cool. So, I yeah, there there is the association with femininity, um, which is fine, it's a beautiful it's a beautiful beverage it's it's it appeals to women for many reasons um but i also think there there is a lot of movement um in the male demographic that maybe people don't realize interesting well it's certainly you know in my experience selling wine to people uh has been a pretty equitable beverage like i, I a lot of people men and women drinking rosé which is great and and cool and that it doesn't necessarily have to skew uh one particular way i just think some of the maybe some of the backlash has become a little i don't know a little unfortunate both you know because rosé is delicious and also because i don't think it's necessarily always in the best of faith yeah isn't there that label white girl rosé or something like that so funny story uh i actually went to college with that guy um <laughs> and uh the fat Jew, that's right that's yeah the fat jewish yeah so so uh, the 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 bit of thing that i'll i'll the i'll say here is that uh his nickname in college was big tropical because uh he wore hawaiian shirts all the time um and i guess kudos to him for figuring out a way to brand himself and be successful but uh it doesn't surprise me given what i remember of him from college that this is the path he's taken <laughs> well, you know, the thing that pisses me off about that is, you know, the men have been running the wine industry for 8,000 years, and women are finally being, you know, just since, what, like the 1960s, women have been even allowed to make decisions about wine. I mean, you know, maybe there are a few exceptions. People are like, what about Vogue Clicquot? Okay, whatever. But <laughs> honestly, men have been running the industry for thousands of years. And finally, women are in the industry and women are acknowledged to be consumers. And, you know, they love rosé. And what you're just going to bag on them about it and make fun of them about it? Seriously? Like, <laughs> that's the thing that pisses me off. I'm like, finally, we have a seat at the table and you're shitting on us. Great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Well, and, and yeah. unfortunately, that's, that's like... Uh... It, uh, I mean, again, the point of the point of this podcast is not necessarily to be a broader political discussion of our current world, <laughs> but um, let's say that the wine world is sadly no better, and in some cases is certainly quite worse than some other uh, fields. But it is it is definitely not uh, uh, sadly an outlier when it comes to the very recent uh, uh, you know sort of space at the table for women and then immediately being like, oh, now you're doing it wrong. Uh, yeah. So. Well, yeah, for sure. Although I will say it's so much better now than it was when I started. I was, yeah, 
uh, yeah, we don't need to go into it, but let's just say it's, I'm, I'm really happy now to see that young women are getting into the industry and it's, the barriers are not there. Um, and th- women are being treated, I hope, more respectfully. Um, I think it's, were. I think it's, I think it's a, I think it's going to be a, it seems to me from, from my perspective, you know, that, that it's going to be a, it is, it is a shifting landscape, but it is not where it needs to be. Um, I think it's exciting to me that young people in general, you know, people younger than me are enthusiastic about wine, are, um, looking to learn more, looking to, uh, either, you know, just as consumers or as professionals getting into the industry, but there's still a lot of, a lot of, uh, old, you know, old, old, uh, old boys clubs that are, um, Mm -hmm. that are, uh, let's say seats of power in the wine industry. And while some of them have opened up somewhat, I don't, I think there's still a lot of that that is just, I mean, might just have to age out, uh, before things change. Cause I don't necessarily see, see it changing dramatically, uh, of its own volition. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although, like I said, yeah, since 2002, I've seen a lot of movement, so I'm, I'm feeling positive about well, that's it. Good. I'm glad I am glad to hear that. Uh, so let's let's talk about the four top uh, for a little bit here. Um, I think what the thing that's interesting to me about it is, you know, obviously you and the podcast are based in Oregon, in Portland, mm-hmm. um, and so I'm wondering, you know, but it but it is at least uh, sort of seemingly, you know, sort of a, a a podcast that appeals to a national or even international audience. How do you kind of balance the let's say idiosyncratically Portland things about? Uh, the podcast and and of the often of the of the uh, panelists you have versus sort of looking at a broader uh, potential audience who might not necessarily either have familiarity with some of the specifics or even be aware of some of the let's say uh, food trends or uh, products or whatever that you discuss. Um, well, I you know one of the reasons I started the podcast is that I I found that national and international food and beverage media were coming to Portland. They were coming to the Willamette Valley to figure out what's going on in food and beverage. And I thought, well, why don't we have national media based here? What, you know, obviously we have our finger on the pulse of, of the culinary world and the beverage world. So we should be putting out national content from here. Um, the other thing is we have this wonderful bookstore called Powell's Books that I'm sure many people have heard of. So anyone who writes a major cookbook or beverage book or food issues book comes through Portland to talk without fail. So we do get a lot of national figures just coming through town, um, not only to to eat and learn, um, but also to present their books. So I knew I would be able to get enough panelists. We have, it's called the Four Tops, like a table for four in a restaurant. So it's me and three panelists in every episode. And I knew I would never have a shortage of panelists whose names have some sort of national recognition. Um, the other thing is, Portland's still an affordable town to live in, and we do have this wealth of food and beverage. So a lot of nationally recognized, whether, whether they're food journalists, beverage journalists, cookbook authors, um, experts, pundits, a lot of those folks just settled in Portland, even though they might be covering you know, topics that, that are, you know, covering food and beverage for publications that are based in New York. So I knew that we could, we could have a national conversation from here. And I knew that that would not be a ridiculous notion. Um, And of course, we do get guests in here and they do start talking about Portland restaurants. 
But you know what? People, our, our economy here in Portland is really propped up by people coming from all over the world to eat and drink here. So it's not unreasonable for someone to mention a Portland chef or a Portland restaurant because people, people in Japan know our chefs. I mean, it's kind of crazy, but it's true. So I, I, I just, you know, I, I do ask my guests every time they mention a specific chef or a specific place, I do stop them and say, you know, remember, we've got listeners in Australia. <laughs> Define, you know, what are you talking about? Okay, tell them it's a restaurant in Portland known for X, Y, or Z. But I, I, don't, I don't have a problem with, with being a little bit self-referential because um, I get tired of all media coming from New York and being, you know. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> you want to talk about self-referential, listen to or read anything. Like I, I remember, uh, I think it was, I'm, I, I won't say specifically which publication because I, I don't know, uh, I don't remember for sure and I don't want to necessarily impugn someone's reputation. But I remember reading a piece that was like, you know, we we interviewed twenty sommeliers about you know what's what trends are coming in the wine world, and nineteen of the sommeliers were in New York, and one of them yeah. was in San Francisco. And I was like, you know, there are people selling wine in places besides New York City. And if you, I mean, like you can't even like you're not going to ask anyone even in like Philadelphia or Boston or DC or let alone you know the cent, you know the rest of the country. It was I think there is that there's this ex, uh, assumption that like oh everyone in New, everyone in the world knows every New York restaurant and so we can name drop some restaurant on the Upper East Side and assume that our readership globally will get it. But you do that in any other city and you know you're too provincial. Right, and it's literally just because they're in New York. And sometimes I wonder. I mean, I think you know those restaurants in New York. Their margins are so different, and the businesses they're running are so different because their rent is so high that they're maybe not as able to be as creative as we are here in Portland. Um, and I think, I think, I really do think that the scene here is more interesting because there's more freedom and more creativity. So, in some ways, I think our psalms and our chefs are more like are, are literally more interesting than those in more expensive cities, not, you know, not inherently because they're somehow better, but because they have a little more freedom to experiment. And of course, you know, as with California, we have just, well, in Washington, just wonderful, fresh produce um, and, you know, beautiful seafood. And, you know, we've got a garden of bounty at our fingertips here. So we have great raw materials to work with as well. Well, and also I think in in the case with all three sort of West Coast states too, you also have the I think profound advantage of very large scale uh, wine, beer, and spirits production um, yeah. close by as well. That you know I think you know there, there's advantages and disadvantages to all of that, but but I think one of the main advantages is a connection to the people who are making the wine or beer or spirits or cider or whatever uh, that that is harder to foster in certain other parts of the country because a lot of the product you're selling is coming to you from thousands of miles away. And that doesn't mean you can't know everything about it, but you might not know the person who makes it. You might not be able yeah. to sort of talk about it in that personal sense, which I think is a huge part of the the dining experience throughout the West Coast, at least in my own personal dining experience. For sure. Absolutely. Although sometimes I'm surprised. I'll be talking to a wine journalist or a food journalist from New York and they will know you know, like they'll know an Oregon winery better than I do. And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I've come out like four or five times and visited. And I'm like, seriously, I, you know, you guys really go go the extra mile to get to know our scene. So, again, I think I think that 
it's not unreasonable to have a national show based here. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I would, uh, I would certainly agree, um, and I think it's it provides a nice counterbalance to, um, as we were mentioning, sort of the preponderance of national coverage of the food industry that that generates basically out of New York City or certainly out of New York and other major East Coast markets with maybe an occasional sort of like, oh yeah, and then there's San Francisco too, uh, and then maybe you know maybe every now and then some other place besides those those two cities gets mentioned yeah. in the conversation. What is and I think that's true of all media. I mean, so many times uh, there'll be a new novel that comes out and it's highly recommended and I'll be so excited to read it. And it, I'll be like, oh, my God, this is another novel that takes place in Brooklyn. I mean, I love Brooklyn. I love New York. But can we please can, just anywhere else would be great, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I just I think I, any any way to diversify media for as far as I'm concerned, it, it just shakes things up a bit and makes everything more interesting <laughs> well and especially in a in a modern landscape where there's no technological reasons uh why you can't do a national podcast or whatever from anywhere Be, you know it makes sense why new york was the center of that industry of you know media for a long time because yeah. producing media was expensive and required a lot of equipment and you know labor yeah. and various things and now you know i can be doing it in the downstairs of my house which spoiler warning i am and uh yeah. <laughs> And, and people all over the world can and hopefully do listen to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have uh, one last, actually two two last questions for you. The first one is sort of uh, talking again about sort of that Portland scene and, and what's going on there. Does it still feel, uh, is, it, is it still super vibrant? Uh, is there a sense in which, you know, obviously the, the, the food and beverage industry there has grown really, really uh, rapidly, has become tremendously acclaimed, again, globally. Uh, do you still feel like there are new places and new things that are opening that are, that are pushing boundaries? You know, for me, I have a, a way of, of um, measuring this. It's my own personal indicator, and that is decor. And here's my personal theory. It's, you know, the, the restaurants that started getting national attention literally started out as food carts here in Portland, or, you know, they would just be a tiny little hole in the wall that was decorated with stuff from Goodwill. And it was because these were chef-driven restaurants that were really about the chef wanting to express herself or himself, and they didn't have a lot of funds, and it's cheap to rent a space here in Portland. And so it was really all about the food. And every time someone tries to open a really expensive, beautifully designed restaurant in Portland with fabulous decor, you know, gorgeous interior, it always fails because that's just not how we roll. We roll authentic food first, you know, um, atmosphere second. And that's always been how we've been. Like there's a, was a famous restaurant called Genoa um, that for years, it like it looked like the... Um, restaurant in an old Saturday Night Live skit, it was like, it was like, is this really a, a restaurant? It just looks so sort of ticky tacky. Of course, later someone purchased it and the, the interior was suddenly swanky and beautiful and it was a beautiful place to dine, but eventually it did close. And I, I wonder if it was because it was too nice for Portland. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> so as long as we stay sort of grubby and grungy, I think, I think that we'll continue to um, push the conversation, but the moment we get a little too lux and a little too high end, I think we're going to get boring. Now, with beverage, um, with beer and cider, we're still pretty, you know, funky and and self driven and and irreverent, so that's good. Um, I would say the same thing is 
pretty much true with our spirits. We have so many small craft distillers, and they're all kind of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. And so that's good. Wine, we do have a lot of money coming in from California. But the good news is that it's being counterbalanced by a lot of money coming in from Burgundy. Um, so the out-of-state money, it does make someone like me a little, you know, makes makes me pause a moment. I mean, I, I only wish Oregon's wine industry the best, and I, I hope that people are able to finally – um, you know, kind of, I don't want to say cash in, but you know, there's been there have been so many years of struggle. It's so expensive to grow grapes here in Oregon, and it's such a struggle fighting against the rain and the, and um, you know the climate and everything else. I'm I'm very happy when I hear an Oregon winemaker who's worked for you know decades has sold their business to um, an investor from California or Burgundy. I mean, I think that's great for them, but you know. It does give me pause because our, you know, there's a reason that Oregon has one of the highest per bottle prices for its wine in the world, and that's because we are known for having um, very carefully made um, wines that come from small family wineries that produce 5,000 bottles or less on average. I mean, sorry, 5,000 cases, <laughs> 5,000 bottles. Um, and so... I do worry when I see a lot of investment coming in that we're going to start to grow, we're going to start to be too big, and then, you know, we're going to be cutting on quality and price, and that's going to kind of bring down the the level of the conversation here in Oregon. But so far, I haven't seen that happening. So, you know, knock on wood. I think there's room for Jackson Family Wines to come in and produce a lot of Oregon La Crema Pinot Noir and distributed everywhere, um, and and yet, you know, the, the quality is very high with what they're doing, and um, the investors who are coming in from Burgundy are really, really serious, and they're saying, you know what, the climate in Burgundy sucks, the weather's been <laughs> horrible for the last 15 years, and we think we can make the best Pinot and Chardonnay in the world here. And as long as that continues to be the attitude, I think we're okay. But yeah, there are a lot of us who are kind of watching and just thinking, okay, let's just not go too far over the edge. Let's not produce too much. Let's, you know, keep our numbers down, keep our quality up. Well, it does seem to me too that one of the interesting things with Oregon in particular right now is you have uh, a little bit of what I think has happened in California to some extent where you have sort of a bifurcation of the industry from the, uh, let's say, Willamette Valley uh, where land prices are continuing to go up and up and up. There's lots of investment from all over the world. And there's sort of a, a focus on we're going to make, you know, very high end, very you know expensive, high quality Pinot Noir mostly and maybe a few other uh, white varietals to go alongside. And then you have everything else that's going on throughout the rest of the state, whether it's, uh, you know, Southern Oregon or uh, the Columbia Gorge, Hood River area, all the sort of production that's going on um, that maybe offers uh, up and coming winemakers a chance to explore, whether it's different varietals or even just, you know, buy grapes at a much less uh, you know, much less cost than, than purchasing fruit out of the Willamette Valley, especially from, mm -hmm. you know, highly regarded Appalachians. And, and I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the, the Willamette Valley is always going to be kind of the, the breadbasket, the moneymaker for the industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as long as there's sort of places for people to learn and experiment and grow, um, I mean, I'm very excited about it. I think it's, it's a, a, the, the quality of wine coming out of Oregon has only continued to get, uh, 
better and better over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is especially true for the Gorge, both sides, Washington and Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of young winemakers are getting grapes from there and just doing super interesting stuff. And I, it's sort of surprising to me that the Gorge actually isn't our top wine region because it's so freaking beautiful, you know, just to go visit. Um, so, yeah, I think there's continues to be so much possibility there as the um, orchards continue. I mean, you know, we still have plenty of orchards, but many of the old orchards are being um, transferred, turned into um, vineyards. And there, there's a lot of possibility in that region. And I just, I love the, you know, it's so windy and the, the climate is so interesting and the soils are interesting. I, I just think there's a lot of possibility there. Yeah. And you have a really wide range of uh, potential growing conditions as you move from sort of west near the uh near the ocean out uh further inland uh and mm-hmm. a little bit drier a little bit warmer so yeah no it's i mean it's definitely an exciting place and and you're right it is strikingly yeah. beautiful to go visit um i'm actually overdue for a visit myself uh so <laughs> i'll have to put that one on the list uh last last question is uh maybe setting aside uh the the local stuff the the northwest or even the west coast um but but what is uh is there anything going on uh beverage wise that you're particularly excited about maybe uh either in the rest of the u.s or or in internationally that, that you that's come across uh or come uh passed in front of your uh lips i guess <laughs> lately oh um gosh i don't know i for some reason i'm i'm really into ligurian wines lately oh, but okay. i'm I, I it's not like i know a lot about them it's just i just always order them and have a wonderful experience with them um i love the rosace grape which is the same thing as Tiburon, which is the sort of historic grape of Provence that makes um, traditionally made rosés in Provence, but now it's really more of just a blending grape. And it's one of these curious old grapes that it's really delicious when it's vinified on its own, um, and I'm just hoping no one else discovers it. Although, you know, I'm sure you know about it. But <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've heard of it. I don't think I could give you a great uh, a discourse on it, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't, for whatever reason, um, Portland tends to have, well, there's, there's a, there's a definite, um, Italian wine crush that Portland has always had. So yeah, you can typically go to an Italian restaurant in Portland and find a pretty good list of Ligurian wines. And I just, oh, just love them. Cool. Yeah. Well, coastal wines are generally speaking, uh, you know, it's you can certainly go wrong, but there are there's a lot, especially it's in Italy since it's, the whole thing is one giant coast. Uh, it's uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, <laughs> it's and I love thing. to just like imagine Portofino, like the 1960s movie stars, like Elizabeth Taylor and Sophia Loren, sitting around with their giant sunglasses and their cigarettes, drinking these like amazing Ligurian wines. Like I just I love. I mean, with wine, I love the whole, not just tasting the wine and talking about the vineyard, which of course is fascinating in a place like, like Liguria where it's like very limited space and it's like on a cliff overlooking this gorgeous sea but also I just love the, just the whole you know evoking the whole kind of culture and the scene and the glamour of it and I, I for me it's it's about telling myself a story that sort of entertains myself yeah well there's an so, incredible yeah. romance to wine I mean that's part of why yeah. I think all of us fall in love with it yeah absolutely excellent yeah. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. It was a uh, fun chatting with you, and uh, super we'll keep, fun. Yeah, we'll uh, keep an ear out for uh, the four top, which you can find uh, on whatever the podcast streaming app of your choice is. I believe. 
I think I'm supposed to say NPR One. Ah, uh, yes, that's the <laughs> Listen one. Listen on NPR One. But, of course, it's also on iTunes and, yeah, whatever your favorite app is. So, great. Excellent. Yeah, thank, thank, you, so thank much. you so much. That was super fun, and I hope we can converse again soon. Thanks again to Catherine Cole. As she mentioned, you can listen to The Four Top on NPR One or your favorite podcast streaming app, and you can find Rosé all day wherever it is you buy books. You can also follow her on Twitter at kcoleuncorked. And as for me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at zjabal. Thanks again for listening to Disgorged, and cheers. Ha, ha, ha.